0: Hello, everybody. This is Father Mark Mary. Today I am joined by Father Malachi. Father Malachi, who some of you may have come in contact with on the Ascension Presents videos we've done together. Father Malachi is one of the friars. He is a recently ordained priest. Whoop, whoop. How far into it? Two months? Uh, less yeah. than two months.
1: Yeah, less than two, bro. <laughs> less
0: than two months. Cream behind the ears. Uh, a very big baby priest. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, Father Malky during his, particularly his last, over the last year and a half, more or less, has really been doing a deep dive study regarding the transgender question and all of the the issues, the history, the nuance, the response, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you know anything about Father Malky, he does not do anything (laughs) half-heartedly. Yeah, all in, baby. All, all in, baby. in. Yeah, hundred and ten percent into everything does not even cut it. Um, and so you went super hard and studied really well. And I heard he gave a presentation to our community dealing with this topic. And I was sitting back and listening to him. Like this is this is he's nailing it. This is gold. And and so the name of the series is Who Do You Say That I Am? A mm-hmm. Catholic Response to the Transgender Question. And I don't know. I don't. I don't know that we need much more
1: introduction to that. If you want to start, yeah, getting after them. it. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start really, uh, for me, the the place to always go back to. The anchor is the the Word, the Word that the Father has spoken in the world, the Word of love, the Word of truth that brings freedom to our hearts. And so I want to go back there for the beginning of this series. Like Father said, it's kind of four parts, um, and we just invite you uh, to hang with it. If you launch out on this train with us, hang with us for the four parts because there's all different nuances to the issue that are going to be addressed, but it's, you can't do it all in one. That's why I was like, you got to break this thing up, man. There's just too much. Um, and so just hang with it because maybe the question that comes up at the beginning will be answered in episode two, three, four, et cetera. So just an encouragement to to walk this journey together as we, we seek to understand more fully the truth of who we are as human beings. Um, so I wanna start with a gospel passage. This is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. And it'll be familiar to a lot of folks, um, but there's a different nuance to it that I'd like to to take an angle on this one. So chapter 16 verses uh, 13 um, through 19. So this is Jesus with the disciples, the 12. He says, when Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. And That question, who do you say that I am, in some sense is a question, right? Jesus is asking it in this context to the disciples. But as I was praying with this, I realized that this question is not just the question of Jesus for the disciples. It's the question of the human heart. Uh, Sometimes it's been phrased in different times and periods like who am I, the human question. But it's also this question that's looking outward for an answer. Um, Who do you say that I am? You know, and recently, I had a couple of experiences where there are people who who had heard a response or or not to that question and could see this stark contrast. One was this young man that I met who's twenty something years old. Um, his name's Daniel. He's up in Yonkers, and he's suffering in a lot of different ways in his life. But one of the things he's suffered is the reality of being an orphan. Mom and dad died in Mexico five years ago, he's made his way to the country, he's living alone and we sat and we talked and he was just pouring his heart out and he's just saying like, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, like, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? What's the mean, like why, why bother? Um, and you could just see in his eyes and you could hear in his voice that this man was walking lost, lost without the answer to this deeper question of his identity. Um, and I contrasted that with another experience I had recently of being with a family. And um, they have these wonderful daughters who are these beautiful young women, confident, full of life, full of joy, these great hopes for their future, this great sense of, of knowing that they're loved because their mother and father loved them so deeply. And I could just see this like solid ground that they were standing on in their lives as they looked forward to, to what was next Whatever part of that journey they, they were on. Um, and I realized that, you know, there's a lot of places we can look for the answer to the question, who am I? But there's really only one voice that gives the deep certainty that the answer is true. And that deep certainty, the answer is true, is the voice of a loving father who looks at you and sees to the depths of who you are and speaks that word of identity, of belonging, of being loved, of being known. And God has done this in a radical way um, in the world. And and we'll get into that later on, but there's also other answers to this question that that we've seen throughout history, but we're seeing in a very unique way at this point in history. Um, There's those who would wanna respond to this question of like, who are you by saying, you're whatever you wanna be. Like, you, you know, it's like, it's like, choose your own flavor on life. Um, it's uh, whatever, you know, the do you mentality, this understanding or this belief that somehow we exist in this world without a definite purpose, a definite meaning, a definite destiny. And you just kind of figure it out for yourself, right? And so this idea has been percolating and growing, and now in a very concrete way, has manifested itself in the world in, in what's often been referred to, at least in Catholic circles and others, you know, as gender ideology. Um, and ultimately, what is that? It's this understanding or this way of talking about the human person and what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. And, and we're in this time, it's tumultuous, right? All things seem like they're up and down and all over and changing. Um, and we're seeing it in the world, we're seeing it in movies, media, we're seeing it in politics, we're seeing it in schoolrooms. Um, but in the midst of this confusion and people trying to answer that question, like, who am I? Um, we have to ask ourselves all these changes that are occurring in society, like, where are they coming from? How the heck did we get here? And I want to start off this four-part series of addressing the issue of of gender, the the transgender question, and and the underlying gender ideology that's behind that, by by looking back a little bit to the past to understand where we're at here in the present moment. So this first episode is going to be a little bit of a like you know a, a history lesson, if you will. And I want to look at a few different things. I want to look at first the history of the word gender, which is like there's all kinds of things attached to that word: transgender, cisgender, you know, like non-gendered, whatever, there's, you know, all these different types of speaking about gender, but what the heck does gender mean? I mean, we use words often without knowing what the meaning is. So I want to look at that word. I also want to look at the ideas and the movements that are, are behind what has developed into this, this movement we refer to as gender ideology. Um, and essentially, you know, like gender ideology tells us that there is no difference um, between men and women that is something natural, that it's something only the society would have constructed, right? That's the basic idea. Like, you know, your, your gender is something society makes. Your identity as a gender is how you feel interiorly in relationship to that social norm. Um, and you get to choose. You get to choose whether or not this feels right to me. And if it doesn't feel right, then it's not right. And that's the basis for the logic of well, if it doesn't feel right for you, again, if this is a world where you do you, um, then we're going to end up in a position where everybody kind of has their own box to check on Facebook, you know? It's like 58 options will never be enough. Uh, We're actually going to need somewhere around whatever we're at, six point something billion boxes on Facebook to be able to choose, like, who am I? Um, And there's a truth in that, but there's also a real deception that we'll we'll get into. There's a truth about the uniqueness of every human being, um, but there's something of a disconnect from our origin and and our destiny as well. So the word gender, um, I'm going to get a little bit geeky on you here as an English major. And so I love words, love the history of words and the history of language. And when we're asking that question about the meaning of gender, it's helpful to actually go back to the roots to take a look at what's the origin of that word. When does it first show up? How has it been used to get a sense of the meaning we have today and how we got here. So looking back the first time that the word gender actually shows up in the English language, we'll see it in middle English. It's the 14th century. And at this point, basic meaning is that it's connected with grammar which, you know, masculine, feminine words. um, And then also it is connected to some extent with like a a sense of categorizing things, male, female, and in the world of like biology and nature. Um, But that doesn't really take off until the 15th century. At that point, you're going to have gender and sex used synonymously in reference to uh, male and female members of the different species, you know, we got this whole scientific revolution happening, and everybody's looking to understand the natural world and categorize it into all these different groups. And so, that word is is one of the words that's used to speak of like what's the gender of this particular member of the species, male or female. Um, But if you want to even get to how did this word show up in English, well, you got to take another step back. Um, You know, and you find that it comes from a word "genre" in French. I'm totally not somebody who speaks French, so apologize to anybody that listens to this and knows how that should have been pronounced. Um, But uh, but that's going to mean like a type, a kind, a sort, Um, and then that also will go back to Latin "genus." Again, sort of having to do with like uh, categorizing different groups of things, of of persons. Um, but even further back, and this is where like I get real geeky, is this theoretical language that uh, you know philologists have come up with to understand the roots of the. European languages and Sanskrit and every and a number of other language groups that all seem to have started at a similar point in this prehistoric era. And at this point, we're actually talking like 4,000 BC and they call it Proto-Indo-European. And so you'll find this word root gen at this point, and that's gonna be the root of the word gender that we have in English and a lot of other words as well that come from that. But the meaning of gen in Proto-Indo-European is to give birth to, to beget, or to procreate. And it's also used as well to mean tribe or family. And so when we begin to look back at the origin of gender, what we find here is a word that is coming out of the human experience, the kind of primordial experience of participating in bringing new life into the world. And so it's no wonder that gender which is connected to this mystery of new life coming into the world is divided into a system that is binary because there are only two ways to naturally participate in procreation, in the coming into being of a new human person. And that's either going to be as a mother or a father, male, female. There's not any other option on that. And so this Binary system is not somehow the fruit of patriarchal oppressive society trying to like, you know, come up with a way to to uh, oppress women. This is actually the fruit of human experience. And so the word develops over time. And that's why from that word gen, um, you get things like, you know, generations speaking about the succession of connectedness that one has with their family. And again, like I said, it also means family and tribe and why because the way that I'm connected specifically to a group of people is through the family I'm born into. So that again, it has this connectedness, the blood connection, the relational dimension of our humanity. And so so here we are looking back and seeing that at the origins of this word, uh, there is in fact a binary experience a reality of human existence, of the natural order, which is the bringing of a new life into the world, procreation. And it is a man and it's a woman coming together that make that possible. And and so to understand that is important. Now we begin to move forward. I want to sort of jump back into English. So the word, as we said, in the 14th and 15th centuries, is connected with grammar, male and female, masculine and feminine, like, words and things of that sort. Um, But it takes a shift in the early 20th century. So early 20th century, you're kind of Victorian era England. And one of the things that develops is certainly a high level of kind of prudishness and sensitivity to anything connected to the sexual arena. And uh, the word sex at this point begins to itself morph and takes on a more erotic meaning. And so sex, which before had typically just been used by scientists to say, what is the sex of this, you know, bird that we've found here in the middle of this forest? Um, Now it has an erotic meaning. And because of that, people get a little bit like, you know, prudish about using it. And they need to find another way to speak about that, you know, biological reality of the difference between male and female. And so gender becomes that word at this point in the early 20th century. Um, and sex kind of falls to the wayside. So the two words kind of have a parting of ways. For a few centuries, they were both synonyms for male and female, biologically speaking and talking about the difference of species. Um, But at this point, they separate ways, and gender is what's going to be used primarily for a few decades to refer to the biological sex. Now, we've kind of come to a, a big turning point in the history of the word, Um, and we're going to begin to look at the, uh, the shift that occurs in the mid 20th century where the actual meaning of the word gender will, will radically change. Um,
0: so Father going back to it's
1: proto-Indo-European?
0: Yeah. That was was better (laughs) than I thought I can (laughs) do. And that is 4,000, perhaps 4,000 BC. Yeah. Okay. Who cares? Sorry, so so it's sort of like because it's Mm -hmm. you under you see a meaning of this and and it's and it's important. Why why go back there? Because it almost seems like the word's going to develop, it's going to change. So who cares where it started? Because it can keep developing and changing. Why why is
1: that starting spot so important? For me, that starting spot is so important. It's because. It responds to um, an assertion that's made by those who espouse kind of this ideology of gender, which wants to interpret um, the differentiation into this into a binary system using their language um, as somehow a construct of a society that is influenced and animated by patriarchal oppressive you know, desire to keep women in a box and to keep men in control. And that's kind of the, you know, the, so that the binary system is this, um, an imposition from outside on our humanity. And the thing that I find when I look back is actually it's, it's quite the opposite, like that, that it's the actual human experience of procreation of the sexual encounter between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and the new life that comes into the world through that act that then is connected with this word. This word is meant to describe somehow that reality. And so the word itself, its meaning, its origin, and the quote-unquote binary system that it is connected with we look back in history and find an actual human experience and not some sort of social construct that has been imposed upon us. And so for me, that's really important because it sort of undermines that argument that's, it's kind of put against um, those who would claim that male and female, he created them is true. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: That makes, I think that makes a ton of sense. If,
1: yeah. if I can sort of
0: see if I can pitch it back to you, if I got it right. Yep. Cause essentially there is going to be an argument. We're going to get into it a little bit later on where it's going to like you're saying is essentially re-looking at the the binary system, male-female, as a more of a modern construct, more or mm-hmm. less. Yeah. At the service of control. yeah, But you're saying like if you go back thousands of years, you can see its origins were already there, referring mm-hmm. to motherhood, fatherhood, and that persisted somewhat slowly developing, but generally consistent for until the thirteenth Fourteenth century.
1: Well, what you have really is that development in the fourteenth century is more of the word being used in the English language. So it's existing during that time frame in other languages, mm-hmm. but English obviously is not something that's okay. been around for a whole long time. You know, um, so I mean, it's it's not even fifteen hundred years old um, as its own language. So mm-hmm. because of that, we're talking about a more recent use of the word. Uh, but that's because the language itself is is more recent. Um, so that's Middle English is during that time era. Um, and okay, and so the Middle English, which is sort of the yeah. first first appearance of gender as a word in English, and that is dealing with grammar, grammar and and beginning to be used for the biological okay. distinction. And then Victorian English, Victorian English. Uh, Take sex time period. Time period, nineteenth century, okay, late nineteenth, and rolling into the early. All right, 20th. So a few
0: hundred years later, now particularly because of the eroticism of the Connected word sex.
1: With, correct. Now it's sex. You know. Okay.
0: And then okay. So why why does the change in the meaning of the word sex change how we use gender?
1: Well, what it does is it it be. Basically, it creates a divide between two words that used to be synonymous. Okay. And so when you're moving into this 20th century, you're now looking at two words that used to be connected. Now they're, they're colloquially or sort of in the common parlance in the vernacular, they're separated. Um, and then gender gets redefined in a pretty radical way and that separation between gender and sex as words referring to two different realities it grows, um, and so we're the language is developing, and it's changing. But with regard to the redefinition of gender specifically, the change is not arbitrary, um, and this is where you know the words of. An illustrious uh, moral theologian who taught at uh, Dumwoody Seminary for years, a a moral theologian, Monsignor William Smith, had a a very apropos phrase that he would use to talk about this. And he would say, Verbal engineering precedes social engineering, which means language itself is intentionally changed in order to use it to change society. And so that's what we're going to see happening. There's a new idea, ideology about the human person, and it's going to transfer a meaning that was before connected between gender and sex with like biology, male, female, and remove that. Um, but uh, I'll get into that actually right now. So, so this is where those
0: words... Are because no longer synonymous, mm-hmm. and now what we're going to do is sort of see how that
1: continues to unravel and where that goes. Correct. Okay. Yep. So the unraveling actually—it's interesting. So basically, the 20th century. I mean, there's a lot of things that are changing during this period of time in history. Um, but one of the things that's called into question is—is is the objective meaning of society of the norms of any given society. There's a anthropologist Margaret Mead, who goes and studies in the, you know, kind of Asian Pacific countries and comes up with the first theories that would develop into what we now know as cultural relativism, which means, well, that's right because it's that culture, but it could be right somewhere else. Or, um, you know, this particular way of men acting is correct for this culture, but it might not be everywhere true or women or vice versa. So there's a developing of this um, way of seeing uh, norms, behaviors, uh, different roles that men and women have in relationship with one another within society as being something that is completely constructed by the society. So she's, she's not fully there, but she's the seedbed But coming on the heels of her anthropological work is a doctor um, who, in fact, is involved with treatment and research for those who are what now we would call um, intersexed, but at that time were referred to as hermaphrodites. And it's basically someone who has an actual um, genetic chromosomal or anatomical ambiguity about whether or not that person is male or female. Um, I could talk quite a bit about the details of that, but I don't want to get so much into the nitty gritty. Essentially, he's looking at children who are born who have ambiguous genitalia, doing this research. And in 1955, he publishes um, a research article based on these studies. And there's there's two things that he does in this that are, are really important for us in this development. And the first and the most important is, is he uses the word gender for the first time with a a totally new definition. And it's based on him trying to categorize um, what it means to be a man and be a woman. And he says that gender is the social norms and characteristics associated with being a man or a woman. And if you listen to that, you recognize that there is no mention about a relationship between gender in the body or gender in any given nature. It's a social norm. So this is a pretty big shift in the meaning of a word that up until this point is male, female. Um, and, it's and, in, and in male, female in this instance
0: is biological. Correct. It's and now a, it's a norm. Now gen,
1: gender is now the social norms associated with being a man okay. or being a woman. And this is Dr. Moni, 1950s? 1955, Dr. John Moni. Yep. Um, the other thing that he argues in this same paper is that gender is something that's fluid up till two years of age. And based on his research with those who have different issues from, from intersex you know, situations where he would have parents tell him what kind of, you know, a boy or a girl, it's not really clear, there's some real... Issues. I can do a surgery. More often than not, they chose female because it was an easier operation at the time, um, and then just raise them as that particular gender, and everything will be fine. And so this was his treatment. This is what he was doing, and this is his assertion. So gender, so, is now something that's fluid, and it's not something that you have because you happen to have a male or a female body but it's something that's formed by the social norms around you. And with a little bit of op- a surgery and a uh, particularly addressing and treating a child, you could form them to be whatever they want. So in essence, it's claiming that there's nothing innate about our identity as men and women that's given to us in nature when we're born or conceived even. Um, and, and he takes this work and he, he goes a step further because an opportunity, in quotations, presents itself to him, which is a case study. And so Dr. John Money does a case study where there's identical twins who come to him and sadly, one of the boys, the doctors botched a circumcision and basically like cut everything off that was made it irreparable. And because of that, the parents came to him saying, what should we do? And he says, oh, well, gender's fluid until you're two years of age, so I'll just do a surgery, make him a girl, raise him as a girl, give him a new name, we'll name him Brenda, and raise him and everything will be fine. And and the parents do this, you know, in goodwill, as it were. But then the result of that is this, you know, quote-unquote little girl is being raised and is not in any way shape or form like conforming to these standards of you know female behavior and in fact is finding himself struggling and experiencing interior tension and thinking I'm a boy why are you treating me as a girl and this tension gets to the point where finally the parents at the advice of a psychologist tell him actually you know what this is what happened you actually really are a boy and he he freaks out and then immediately demands for a reversal of what's happened and takes the name David. Um, but that research, Dr. Moni publishes and says this was a success. There was this case study of twins, and this you know boy, after an operation and being raised this way, was perfectly in like a wonderful you know little girl. And the, the disingenuousness of, of John Moni um, was only evident further down the line when it was clear that this reversal, where Brenda says, actually, no, I'm David, um, and his given sex, his biological reality is what he returns to, Dr. John Money continues to give speeches and talks and teach as if this was a success case. So the problem with this is not only that this happened and that he's talking about this in the scientific world. The problem is, is that these ideas get picked up by what's referred to as second wave feminist as the scientific basis for a new idea of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Um, and so you're going to find feminists looking to Dr. John Money's research as the scientific basis, the evidence, as it were, for a new definition of gender. And what's the problem with what he's saying? Well, the first problem is is that he's taking exceptions, cases of intersex, which are real, but reasoning that because there is this exception, which could be anywhere from 0.0018% of the population to 0.07%, depending on which type of intersex you're referring to, this exceptional situation becomes the basis for him to say as a norm every child could be any sex and also additionally there's faulty science he does this research project and in the end it actually backfires on him and yet he continues to publish it as if it were a success and evidence for what he's arguing which is not just that this redefinition of gender but also that gender is fluid and you could be whatever you want as it were um, now, the last piece of the puzzle for Dr. John Money, which is important for us, is in this later publications about that case study with David Raymer, who very tragically ended his own life when he was 38 years old after years of just struggling with all kinds of you know distress and mental health things that came from the result of his experience uh, that, he, that he went through. Um, but in that same book where he's talking about this, Dr. Money says you know what, Um, gender can also be subdivided into a gender identity and a gender role. And so he again puts forth a new definition. Gender identity is my private individual experience of how I feel inside about gender. Gender role is the outside external expression of that with others, the public part of it. Um, And that's important because as we're looking at the ideology of gender, there's a movement away from the objective and into the subjective, away from a world where there's a nature that's given to me and into a world where I get to create myself and be whatever it is that I want to be. Um, Now, as I mentioned before, Dr. John Money will influence the feminists that are gonna come in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. And he's a bit of the intellectual backbone for them. But what happens here is this, is that originally first wave feminism, for those who aren't you know familiar, just a kind of like quick snapshot, they're fighting for the right to vote. They're fighting for education. They're fighting for work opportunities. In essence, they're fighting for any equality in society for women with men. Second wave feminists, however, are fighting for something different and they're using a different means. And I'll just like read a quick quote from um, one of them, Shulamith Firestone and and she articulates it quite well. She says that the end goal of the feminist revolution must be unlike that of the first movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. So now we're in this world where the distinction between male and female itself is seen as the enemy, is seen as what we're fighting against. For this, these, these feminists that are rising up, and kind of, I'll add the, you know, the adjective radical, because there's some that wouldn't be as extreme. Um, so, radical feminists are, are arguing for this. And they're publishing books, and these books are being read by the general public. And you have Anne Oakley in 1972, and she's using sex for the first time as exclusively the biological dimension of male and female, and gender as exclusively social construct. So you see this idea growing, the wave is growing. It's 1950s, 60s, 70s. And as the wave continues to grow, um, the understanding of the relationship between men and women is more and more interpreted through a Marxist framework. And what does that mean? It means that in the same way that, you know, like a kind of communist view of society sees a class struggle happening between the haves and the have-nots, this applied to male-female relationships sees a struggle between male patriarchy as the oppressor, the haves, and women as those fighting for their own liberation through revolution. And if you know the, the sort of ideas of Marx, the way forward is to destroy all that is different and create a utopia where there is no difference. And so now this is getting applied to men and women. And so as you know, Shulamith had said, we want to get rid of the sex distinction itself. And so now what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a way of seeing the world in which the binary system claiming that male and female, he created them, is true, that is seen as a patriarchal oppressive system that has to be taken down. And at the same time, the instrument that perpetuates that is the great evil of marriage and family and motherhood. And those also must be destroyed in order for this freedom, this equality to be achieved. Now, don't get me wrong, are there real injustices? Everybody knows, absolutely yes. But the conclusion, as it were, is a bit of the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater. It's sort of not recognizing for certain the presence of original sin, the brokenness of our humanity. And it's seeing instead that the very human nature that we have is somehow the enemy. And so that must be destroyed. And this is, a, this is a real distinction between a secular view of our humanity and one that has the light of revelation shed upon it. Because in the secular world, if there's difference, there's inequality. But through the light of revelation, we're able to see that actually that difference in the way that our nature is expressed as men and women is part of the very equality of dignity that we possess. And the world doesn't get that because guess what? The revelation of this God who is three in one, three persons who are distinct and different and yet equal is not something that is there within the framework. And so what do you do? You want the justice. You have to address the injustice So we are going to destroy anything that's different. So you end up with this war on nature. You end up with a war on the family. And that's this goal that's set out upon back in the 1960s, the 70s, Um, And so what develops is two different ways of speaking about the human person. One is sex, which comes to mean basically biology, the physical differences between men and women. And the second is gender, which now doesn't mean male, female anymore, but rather refers to the characteristics, behaviors, mannerisms, and roles that society has created for men and women. And those are totally arbitrary. They've been constructed by the society. And if they've been constructed by society, guess what? We can deconstruct them, especially if we look at them as obstacles to having a just equal world for us to live in, which who doesn't want that, right? And this continues um, to develop into the 80s and kind of the, the the tip of the iceberg, as it were, is a, a thinker, um, Judith Butler. And, and she's going to argue that there's actually not only not somehow an innate male or female in the sense of gender, but she's even going to argue that like sex itself is something that society creates. And the way that she understands um, the differences is that, okay, they're arbitrary at best, but at worst, they're an instrument of the patriarchy. And one is not, and this is kind of like just, I'll explain with an analogy in a minute. One is not so much a man or a woman, but one acts as a man or a woman. In other words, it's not something that you are, it's something that you do. It's something that's referred to as performance theory. And, and her understanding is, is that gender is radically independent of anatomic sex. And so she would even argue that you could use like male and female or male, male and man could be, you could use that same word for a female or a male body and it wouldn't matter. Um, It's it's completely a social construct. So if it's a completely a social construct, that it means that there's no problem with somebody deconstructing it, destroying it, or coming up with their own idea of what they think is a better option. And so running back through that, you realize that uh, if I am a man who feels like I'm a woman. The fact that my body is male biologically is no indicator at all of what my gender is because gender is a social construct. And no one else could talk to me about my identity because gender identity, as Moni has said and as the feminist would continue to argue, is an interior subjective feeling that I have about this exterior social norm. And so, yeah, I... I like pink more than I like blue, therefore, I'm not a guy, I'm a girl. Um, and, and this loss of a sense of the givenness of our nature opens up sort of a Pandora's box, as it were, um, and leads us into the 90s. Uh, and, and at this point, um, these ideas are going to become more and more radicalized as we're moving forward in history. And you have this event in you know, Beijing back in 1995, this women's um, UN conference. And at this is the place where the first time in the national forum, international forum, the language of gender and sex is two different things. The understanding of masculinity and femininity is purely social construct. And the goal of women's liberation being connected to liberation from motherhood um, and liberation from marriage, monogamous, monogamous marriage in particular, uh, as part of that project. Um, so at the end of this, in the 90s, there's this apex that we're arriving at. And the apex has included quite a number of different things that have come together. The area of sexuality, uh, which that's the LGB part um, but then also the the area of identity which is the t part when you look at uh, lgbt
0: okay i'm i'm tracking you um i think it was i think that was clear i think that's clear
1: um
0: carry on carry on my way <laughs> with
1: son. um so just a quick summary um before we you know move on is to say First off, Moni's definitions, to just give people recaps, I think sometimes that's helpful. Um, Gender uh, is a social norm and characteristic that's connected with the idea of being a man or being a woman. 1955. 1955. Gender identity is the way that I feel inside about those norms. Gender roles are the way that I act outside towards others to fulfill those roles. Sex is now biological, anatomical for those that don't reject it altogether, like Judith Butler would. And gender is purely a social construct. And the injustices that exist in the world between men and women are ultimately the result of this binary system that is carried on and perpetuated through marriage and motherhood and all of these things are kind of in the crosshairs. But what doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily enter into the awareness of these feminists as they're moving forward is now that woman is no longer anything other than a social construct and anyone could choose to be that, well, they're beginning to untether themselves from actually being able to have a meaningful word to refer, refer to themselves but this language is gonna be what is taken into the 1995 Beijing Conference for Women. And this is a threshold moment because it's when the language of gender and gender ideology becomes popularized and mainstreamed in political discourse and in international like different movements. And, and there is a power move that begins to be made in different spheres to normalize the language, and to bring about conformity um, across political boundaries in support of, of this way of viewing the human person. We're moving from um, a lot of groups working in academia and in some different political arenas to now an international level where the language, the idea, the ideology are being pressed hard and there's an attempt to begin to not just redefine things in classrooms and in laboratories, but to redefine them in law. And, the, and, and what's, what's being argued for is, well, the respect and dignity of every person. And who could say that we oughtn't to respect the dignity of every human person? Like everybody's on board with that. But the thing is, is what does respect mean? And what is it in relationship to? And if the only value that's there is like what I choose and what I feel, then what respect means is you tolerating anything and everything I choose to do with my freedom. There's nothing that I could do that you could ever say is somehow inappropriate, um, that is somehow contrary to well, you can't even talk about right or wrong. You can't talk about good and evil. You can't talk about a nature or the lack thereof because there's this relativism that emerges from there and that is behind it. And, and it has a desire, which I would say, um, in part is good, the desire to fight for justice. Amen. The desire to defend people who are discriminated against unjustly. Amen. Amen. Um, The desire to recognize the uniqueness of each person, amen. Like we're behind all of that. But the desire to affirm somebody's view of reality that contradicts all the objective evidence and contradicts science, no. A desire to redefine man and woman, not according to the image and likeness of God, but according to what I choose, no um, to seek to dismantle the family and look at motherhood and fatherhood and family as an obstacle to freedom as an obstacle to the fulfillment of my humanity, absolutely not. And these are all part of this gender ideology, um, and I'd like to just like to just say real quickly that. One thing before moving into anything else about gender ideology is this, that when we're talking about gender ideology, I am not talking about people who experience struggles, confusion, difficulties surrounding their identity and gender. Somebody who has a transgender experience, you could call it. When we're talking about gender ideology, we're talking about a movement that is seeking to dismantle society's fundamental foundational building block, which is the family and that is seeking to achieve some sort of equality by the destruction of anything that is claimed to be different between men and women. Uh, It's the the movement that wants a genderless society, not a gender plural, but genderless, that it would become meaningless, the words would become meaningless, man and woman would become meaningless. I mean, Judith Butler said as much, you know, she says that, you know, well, because these things are so arbitrarily related to society, you could just as easily say of the female body, male and man, as you could of the masculine body. That there's this utter denial of objective reality giving us any sense of of the truth of who we are as human beings. We have no nature. So we're we're standing against that. um, And we're also standing against the fallout from what's happening as a result of this. So the fallout is, you know, like the family is struggling in so many ways in the world. Um, the, you know, the attack on the family has taken many forms, and, and the family is now seeking to be redefined. Um, a mother and a father are are now looked at as as somehow like, you know, well, that's a nice option you know, in this like, you know, party bag of chips and you could grab that if you like it, but there's nachos in there too and you could get that. And it's like, as opposed to, no, like there's actually a good that the love of a man and a woman are ordered to and the commitment that they make to one another, the stable home life and raising of children. Like this is something that's fundamental to to building a stable, just society. It's not the enemy of our freedom. Um, So... I guess I'd like to maybe just shift to articulate. So for the sake of clarity, we've been talking a little bit about history. Um, I just like to, to present the basic claims of gender ideology, those who would hold this position, this view of the human person, to clarify what it is that they're saying. Um, so we've already spoken about this, but just first off, gender is a social construct. that has no connection with nature, with biology. It's completely an imposition from outside of us. Um, The second is, is that my freedom is radical, it's autonomous, and I get to create myself and be whatever I want. There are no limits. Um, There's nothing directing me. There's no goal that my nature is oriented to. There's no nature that I've been given, period. Um, and, And within that is that feelings determine reality. So it's not as if, I feel this way and the world around me says something different and I need to work out why there's a disconnect. It's that I feel this way and my body is different so I need to have a surgery to change my body. Um it's, you know, I recognize, you know, that that it's, you know, it's not good for me to be afraid. You you can look at other areas in life where you see this like phobias. It's like, it's not good for me to be afraid to just walk outside my door. Well, you could say, yeah, it's okay. That's how you feel. So just, you know, order out for everything, you know, do your shopping on Amazon Prime and like, you know, like don't leave your house if that's what you feel is safe and that's what you feel is good. But we can look objectively and say, no, like that's not good. There's actually something that's limiting the life that you're made for. And we can see that same thing happening here in the area of sexuality and identity. Um, so feelings determine reality. Uh, there's also with this language, so I mentioned before, verbal engineering precedes social engineering. So now, in order to continue to try and indoctrinate the culture with this ideology, we're going to create new words that affirm this view of reality. So you're a guy or you're a girl, and that is the way not only that others see you, but it's also the way that you see yourself, you recognize that, you accept it, you're living it. Before there was no word that would describe that, but now that's cisgender. Um, and before the, the words that we use, the pronouns, et cetera, that we use referred to the objective reality that you were encountering, but now those things are being changed um, in order to reflect a view of humanity that sees this as fluid, as you know, it, it's it's essentially what I prefer. It's the way that I see myself at this moment. Um, there's also the the arguments are being made, so people are going to bring up, well, hasn't science proven this? You know, there's brain scans, there's all kinds of stuff that show that you know some guys' bodies have female brains and vice versa. Um, but unfortunately, like, and we'll talk more about this actually in episode three. We're going to have a friend of the community, Dr. Greg Batara, with us. We'll get deeper into the science. But the science actually does not support that. Um, and we'll talk more about that then. Um, another, another way of speaking about, um, about the human person is this transgender means that I can cross over the boundaries back and forth and that needs to be respected by you And it needs to be respected by you because the way that I feel is innate, the way that I feel is permanent, the way that I feel is something that's not changing. You need to respect that about me. Um, but then at the same time, the argument is made that that can change, and then you need to respect that change. And so the question of the origins of this is, is a real issue. Now, I do have to say, and this is, this is from the best science that's there, um, we don't know all the factors involved, but there is good research and the best research shows that 72% of the causal factors involved with identity and the formation of identity and relationship to myself as man or woman are things that happen through the nurturing, the situations, the experiences of my life. And 28%, you could say, could have a composite that's of genetics or hormones or things that are involved from, from biology. So, so the major factors involved are not something that are just simply coming from you know a predetermined reality, but there's something that's a combination. And, and that's kind of true of all of us in, in many ways, right? Like there's some things we receive through genetics, there's other things that happen as a result of the way that we're raised or the families, the life experiences that we have, the good experiences, the bad experiences factor into that. Um, so, so gender ideology is saying, no, this is innate, this is from birth, this is something that's stable. Science doesn't actually agree with that. Um, again, we'll get into more of that in that third session. But I think another factor involved here too is, is as the movement is, moving, is out there trying to promote acceptance of this, acceptance of the behavior, acceptance of what's referred to as transitioning So uh, you know we could get into a lot of like the details of transitioning, but basically um, there's like four different ways of transitioning. One is social transition, which is like I'm going to change my name, my preferred pronouns, the way that I dress. Uh, Another one, if you're prepubescent, is I'm going to take puberty blockers and I'm not going to allow my body to naturally pass through puberty. Another one is I can introduce hormones that are going to alter my physical appearance. you know it's testosterone for the girl who says that she's a guy and estrogen and other you know other types of hormones for the guy who's saying that he's a girl Um, and then the final and kind of more like long-term impact would be surgical transition um, which would be mutilation of the genitalia and reconstructing those with the appearance of the genitalia of the opposite sex or if it's a female double mastectomy, removal of the breast. Um, And and in all of these, there's, again, the way that I feel inside is, it's it's a difficult experience for the person walking through that because this can be a very deep-seated, ongoing um, reality. And the distress of trying to figure out how to navigate working through that leads you into a situation where a lot of people suffer in different ways and you see that suffering show up with you know, issues connected with mental health, anxiety, depression, suicide rates um, that are just disproportionately higher amongst those who have a transgender experience. And so because of the struggle of that real experience, uh, the solution that is offered is we need to affirm And we need to encourage that transition on all four levels. But again, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the third um, episode of this, uh, that doesn't actually play itself out in the facts and the data. And and the best research we have available, long-term, large groups connected with children is at 80 to 90% children who struggle with this question of identity actually revert to and recognize identifying with their, with their sex um, that they're born as, as, as either a boy or a girl. Um, so science doesn't agree necessarily with these assertions, but these are the assertions that are being made. And so if I'm in a situation as a mother or as a father and a doctor tells me, well, you need to give the child puberty blockers. You need to change their name, uh, the way that they dress. Uh, you need to look forward beyond the age of 16 to hormone treatment or 18 for surgery. Uh, because if you don't do that, this child's going to commit suicide and you'll be responsible for their death. So there's this leveraging that's happening to push it forward that's um, a manipulation. And it's also not actually true, especially in the case of children, where we know that you know, that this is a struggle for some, some it continues through life, but a lot of them it's gonna end up actually resolving itself as they pass through puberty naturally. Um, so it's a lot. I know it's like, it's a, uh, we're talking about this massive, massive issue, we're talking about real people though in the midst of it who are suffering or who are experiencing real difficulty and that cannot be belittled, it can't be denied. Um, we're gonna speak later on in this series about how the church ought to reach out to and, re- and receive and love these people. Um, but at the same time, we're gonna talk and we need to continue to talk about how the church has, has good news. The church has good news because Jesus Christ is the good news made flesh. The love of the Father sent into the world to answer this question that's in each human heart the question of who am I? Um, And even though the world is groping as it's looking for the answer, getting lost, very lost in many ways, um, we have both the confidence and the surety that the God who has revealed himself as love in the flesh and Jesus Christ is the God who makes all things new. So it's always good news, even though, yeah, society's, moving in a very dark direction with the ideology um, and it's impacting a lot of things negatively and yet the light is still present in the world the light of christ that shines in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome and that's a place where we always come back to uh, that's the place where in that light is where the answer the truth of the answer to that question will be revealed who am i um, and ultimately the who am i question is actually us saying who do you say that i am um, both to the world, but more deeply, more fundamentally to God. Who do you say that I am? And we're going to have the joy of diving deeper into that in this next episode, looking at the the plan, the beautiful plan God has that he's given us for our sexuality, what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, but for that, I think it's enough, enough of a... Uh, Information overload. Uh, there's a lot of good material out there that, you know, we'll post up some links to some different literature if, if you're interested in really getting into some of the facts on this at a, at a deeper level.
0: Yeah, grateful, Father Malachi. So as, we'll, we'll kind of bring in this again, part one. I kind of see, you know, like if you, a typical sort of format for like a movie or something like that, it's going to have like three parts. It's, I think that it's like the, they call it, what is it? They call it like, Empathy, conflict, catharsis—like I need to relate to the character, then I need to sort of enter into suffering with them, and then some healing. Like the—I I use that example because this is one, this is one arc. Mm-hmm. These, these four, this four-part, four episodes are again with one one story. And so we really want to invite you again to to come along for the whole journey. And I think we're off to a really great start. I think the history is is uh, I, you just know your stuff, and I think it was really well laid out. So I, I'm grateful for that.
1: We, we usually end with a prayer. Would you be able to end us yeah. with a prayer? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, we just stand before you, stand before you as human beings whose hearts are longing to know the truth of who we are, the truth and meaning, purpose of our life, our existence. Um, we recognize, Lord, that it is not easy and in different ways. Many people struggle along that journey So we pray for those who are struggling this day. We ask, Lord, that you would pour your love, your light, your mercy upon them, that they could come to know your love. That love would bring freedom, healing, the fullness of life uh, to each of us that we are made for, that we long for. We we ask for this through the prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, St. Francis, all the angels and saints, and we make this prayer in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Name of
0: the Father, the Son, Holy the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you all for, for listening and walking with us. We look forward to being with you again. Goodbye, all.